This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Matthew chapter 19, 13 through 30, which examines Jesus' interactions with little children and the rich young ruler. Together, we will be discussing the cost of following Jesus. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast, uh, back again with you this week to continue our journey through Matthew. Um, and we are uh, going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 19 this evening, but as a Quick recap, uh, the first half of Matthew, last week we discussed Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12, and in that we looked at the the Pharisees questioning Jesus about divorce and how he really continues his teaching on uh, in emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, this week we're going to move into the second half of Matthew 19. Uh, where we look at Jesus' statements on uh, children and his interaction with a wealthy man. Some might call it the rich young ruler, uh, just depending on the the gospel you're looking in. But um, I think today we have Derek reading for us. So Derek, would you mind reading Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So Matthew 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went, he went on from there. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to, to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect... Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, They were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much as will inherit eternal and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. 
All right. Thank you for uh, reading that, Derek. So let's just, uh, let's go for it. What, what are we seeing? What observations do we have or maybe questions? Uh, where do we want to go? I think the first thing that sticks out to me is, is Jesus did this previously in regards to the little children. And, um, you know, he, we, we see this emphasis from his perspective on those who may not have had value having value. Hmm. And so um, we talked about the honor and shame society and how children were viewed and their value not coming until they were mature. And so um, it's just almost for me, like a refocusing of Jesus reminding those that are with him that, you know, the disciples specifically, um, that these children have value. And so that's, that's one thing that it comes, it kind of comes to my mind based on what we've, we've been through. I think, uh, with that calling back to last week's conversation and how, uh, the passage on divorce ended with a conversation on eunuchs. And um, in that time, uh, eunuchs were didn't really have a place either um, because they couldn't uh, have children. They couldn't have offspring. And so they, they were kind of seen of seen of as less. Uh, they were an incomplete individual, right? Um, and so it's interesting that we go from that where you're you're talking about people who have little value into Jesus Jesus encounter with children and the disciples kind of pushing them away but Jesus saying no 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 like let them come to me to to emphasize the value that they have and how that that kind of just takes all of this conversation and says like the people that are often associated with having little value please understand that in my upside down kingdom, they have value and value far beyond what you think. As you were, were talking, I, I was thinking about some of the conversation we had last week in, in regards to commitment and how the eunuchs, like there was no going back, that they were fully committed to what, what they were, what right. they were doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost wondering if, if Jesus is trying to paint the picture for them that, those who have are viewed with less value have this easier ability to just commit more fully commit because like we go on like further on we talk about the rich young ruler who in in the eyes of of the world he has all these things and it's so hard for him to commit yet for those who are despised and rejected like they like they run to it and they want to give everything that they have to, to be, you know, to have this life, that, to be a part of this kingdom. Mm-hmm. I think that that thought is held together with the, the final verse of this whole uh, chapter, which, I mean, I know we've got a lot to go back to, but just to follow up with what you said, I mean, the last verse says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And that just continues to give credence to this idea that, you know, Jesus's kingdom is an upside down kingdom and the ones who have much, they're going to find this hard to, to throw in everything to pursue Jesus because they have so much to, to lose. And yet those who have little value from world standards, like they don't have much to lose. 
And so they are all in. And and it's that all in thing that Jesus is looking for. <laughs> yeah, you continue to see the Beatitudes weaving their mm, way into yeah. even the cur- all the way here where we are um, approaching approaching the cross, and we continue to see this this blessed are the and you you know fill in the blank whoever is is the lowly in this case it's like blessed are the children right blessed are the poor. So let's press on into this encounter with the rich young man. And um, I think when I first look at it, the thing that sticks out to me is there is a similarity to other encounters with, especially recently as we've been working through the gospel, of it's not that the rich young man is coming to like do like a gotcha question, but he is coming with a question to either receive affirmation or some kind of confirmation in support of his understanding of things. And so the rich young man comes to Jesus and asks these questions. I don't know that he's necessarily seeking to learn anything new from Jesus, but really hoping to be affirmed in what he is doing. And then from there we get this, this discourse. When I think this is how, this is how a lot of Christ followers and we interact with Jesus, right? Mm. We want assurance of salvation. We want to know that we've been obedient. We've done what he's asked. We've followed him. Right, Jesus? Right, Jesus? Um, the question is, how are we going to respond when he points out the next thing he has for us to work on and then the next thing mm. and the next thing? And so I, I see that coming to life in this story. I see like there's two different, you know, with his first, you know, response, Jesus is talking very, very much like the law. He's, he's, his, you know, don't do this, make sure you're doing this and that those things. And I think he's setting it up as he's done throughout the entire time we've been talking about Matthew. He's setting this up to say, okay, yes, you're doing what the law of Moses says, but we're going to, but what I require is a hard change. I require sacrifice. And um, I think the rich young ruler is going in thinking, I got this. Like, I, you know, I'm following these rules. I'm, I'm doing, and I think a lot of times as Christians, we can get hung up on that. Like, I, I, I do this well. I'm, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I, um, you know, read my Bible occasionally. I do all these things. So I'm probably good. But that's, Jesus is not asking for us to check things off our our to-do list. He's asking for us to be all in, to sacrifice, to live vertizontally, to check with him and check with others. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. When thinking about it in, in those terms, um, specifically, Brittany, when you were saying what you were saying, it made me think back to, again, the Sermon on the Mount conversation, more in the introduction, though, where Jesus actually makes this statement to the people of, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Um, specifically, let's see, hold on, let me, let me turn to it. So it's Matthew 5, uh, Matthew five twenty. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this beginning... Um, like exchange where Jesus is talking, he is, he is, he's setting that stage for, okay, 
Like this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of law of the law recognize as righteousness. This, this works oriented thing where like you don't do this, you do do this. And this is how you like operate. He brings to life this statement of, of helping us understand what does it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, it it's, it's this, it's, you're right. You, you haven't killed anybody. You haven't done those things. Yes, you've checked those boxes. But now I need you to get all of that stuff out of your life that is keeping you from having your full focus on me. And that's what it looks like to have that righteousness that surpasses that of the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this heart change. I, I As I sit here and like read the passage... And I'm thinking about what the interaction that he has with Jesus. I feel like maybe for the first time, I don't know that I've ever seen it this way before, but that he already knows the answers to the questions that he's asking. He's just hoping that Jesus says something different than he already knows. Hmm. Like he already knows what Jesus is requiring. That's why I feel like he goes away sad because he knew what Jesus was going to require. And he knew what that meant. And I mean, obviously, we don't know what happens beyond this. Like, I feel like this sadness is a state of like contemplation. Like, he's really thinking about what Jesus said. And, and so, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know that I ever saw that before, but I, I just think that he already knew what Jesus was going to say. He was just hoping that he might say something different because. It seems to me like Jesus is already working in his heart and in his mind to come with those questions because I don't feel like he's trying to change Jesus's mind or like you said, he's not trying to trip him up, but it's almost like he knows. Like how many times have we been in that spot? Like we come to Jesus asking a question that we already know the answer to, but we're hoping that he gives us a different answer. And at the end of it, Usually that comes with some sort of sacrifice that he's asking for us to have. And mm. so, um, I don't know. I just, I'd never seen that before. So thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Cause he does, he asked the question, what do I still like? Like Jesus has already answered the question that he asked. His question was, what good thing must I do to get into eternal life? And Jesus answers him and he, it's like, he knows like, I know there's something else. I, and I feel like there is, we, I, I don't, well, personally, I've felt that. I've felt that, you know, I'm doing these things around, like I'm I do, doing what I'm supposed to do. But in times when I felt a far away from Jesus, that I, I'm, I know that there's something lacking. Like I know that I'm just, that there's just something not there. And it's always that heart change that has to happen. That, that, okay, I need to lay this stuff down. I need to do this. And I need, um, so I think I agree. I think he's, I think he knows there's something missing. So this may be, I'll say this, maybe we need to test this, but something that stuck out as you guys were saying that I, I began to look back again at the passage and look at the list that Jesus says that, you know, the commands he must keep. The last of the things he says is love your neighbor as yourself. 
And in my mind, that means that he's caring for the people around him, right? And so he says, I've done all those things. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. Um, essentially, in Jesus's response, it almost affirms that you're right, you have done these things. And even still, you know, he says, what do I lack? And his response is, sell everything. Sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. And so for me, I hear that, I read that, and I think about that. And I wonder, I wonder just like this rich young man, how much our understanding of what it means to love our neighbor falls short of God's understanding of what it means to love our neighbor. We usually think about loving our neighbor as like we care for them, we love them, we give them what is needed insofar as it does not cost me everything or put me in a difficult situation or um, compromise my ability to continue to move forward. And yet Jesus here essentially tells the rich young man to enter into a compromised situation where he becomes nothing and gives to those in need around him so that he can more perfectly, and that's actually the word that my um, translation uses, if you want to be perfect, do these things. And so I, I don't know, what, what are your guys' thoughts about that? I, that's just something that hit me right there. I can I can definitely see, you know, this not just in the the rich young ruler, but in our own lives. Like you you said, like our I our idea or our definition of of love, I would imagine, falls short even when we don't intend it to. Mm-hmm. Um, which I would say is where he was at. Like, yeah, most um, it wasn't an intentional like it was falling short. Um, Jesus was just calling him to not rely on his material possessions, but to fully rely on him to meet all his needs. And so in that, by fully, rely, fully relying on God, he, he's able to help meet the needs of others by selling everything he has and following Jesus. And so it's even beyond the love aspect. I mean, it is love, but it's the perfect love for God and perfect love for others. And so having that perfect love for God allows him to perfectly love others because if he, if he's following Jesus, if he's selling everything to follow Jesus and he's giving it away, he's accomplishing both at the same time. And so, yeah, I I definitely see how, what you, what you mentioned there. Yeah, it causes, I agree. It causes me to think kind of about all, not just like this last statement of love your neighbor as yourself, although all of the law and the prophets hang on Mm -hmm. that and love God. Um, But just how narrowly we think of a lot of these commandments. Like, I mean, Jesus has just repainted what it means to not murder, right? 
I tell you, if you hate your neighbor in your heart, right, it's as if you've murdered him. Right. So he's just gone through re like expanding the definitions of what all of these are. And I still think even today, right, we, we, we narrow in, I, I look at like, you shall not steal. And I, I think a, a good majority of us could say, yeah, I don't walk into like the bank and rob them. I don't, but, but do we use fair weights and measures all the time? Do we pay good wages as we ought? Do we, are, are we really looking to not steal? Or is our heart like the selfish one, which again, you see this, this love for neighbor kind of coming back into this conversation. And so I think, I think Jesus is still trying to work on stretching what our human understanding is of these, of these legalistic commands. And I feel like it's probably something humanity is going to battle until, until, you know, his kingdom comes in full. When you say it like that, when you talk about like, do we steal? Um, I guess I don't even remember the exact word that you said, because immediately what went to, what went through my mind is like, do we, do we steal from our, like those who work for us or those that we work with, or like when I hire, you know, you said paying fair wages. Um, like, are we stealing people's time in the name of getting a good deal or their value or their value in the name of getting a good deal? Like in, in the culture that we live in today um, and, and the, economy that we live in today i mean it the best practice is to try to get things as cheap as possible to try to limit costs to try to <laughs> extend our profit margin like that that's the name of the game and yet if we look at that and begin to see not just the numbers associated with it, but begin to personalize it and see the people that are being consumed in that process. I think it would be really easy for us to begin to see that, man, you're right. Maybe we're not walking into the bank and, and robbing it, but there's a lot of theft that is going on in the name of getting a good deal or making larger profits depending on where you might find yourself in the midst of that economy. Cause I recognize not everybody like has employees under them, well, and that, but there yeah. is some level of participation in it in, in some way or another. I think you can see the re reverse side of that too, where as employees you can steal, like, I mean, even if you're, you can mm. steal from your employer and steal time uh, from them. So you're, I mean, you've, and we don't, but we don't think of that that way. Yeah. Cause we don't see the people, right? We don't see our em employer as, as a person necessarily. We see this as a system. Hmm. And so when you remove, remove the face, it's much easier to just kind of engage in, in what standard cultural practice is. Hmm. Okay. So then the question becomes, 
and I know usually we like come to the end and, and have a question like this, but I think that in this conversation right now that we're having, I think it would be wise for us to ask the question. So then with this in mind, how does this then impact what we do? Like, what are we thinking? What are we understanding that Jesus might be asking of us as he is working to expand our understanding of what it means to love our neighbor? Well, I think if you weigh it against what the what the disciples or what he he shares with the disciples here, it's not about what we get. Loving somebody can't be based on what we get out of it. And so I think we have to we have to view each relationship with the fact that we may not get anything. There may not be any reciprocal love in that. And I think that that's, for me, that's kind of the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. Love love can't be, because Jesus went to the cross because he loved us, knowing that some would still reject him. And so um, love, like he loves, truly is an unconditional love with no strings attached, where we can expect nothing like, in the church, we put on programs and things. We do things to try to get people with an expectation of getting something in return. And, I mean, we we have to just love on our neighbor. And if they show up, great. And if they don't show up, great. Because we can't love with strings. I think for me it goes to... Um it makes me think of Colossians where what says, whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. I think if, you know, we intentionally, I'm I'll specifically speak, talk about myself. If I'm, if I'm intentionally going to work to do God's work, whatever it may be, um, it may seem menial, you know, do whatever I'm doing. If it, yes, I'm doing it for my employees or I'm doing it for my boss or I'm doing it for the, the hospital in general. Um, but if I'm doing that for the Lord, then I'm I'm not stealing. You know, I'm making sure that I'm being productive in the way that I, I should be. And I'm making sure that I'm fair with my employees and that I'm I'm doing all the things that I'm being held to that higher standard because I'm doing the work for the Lord. And I think if we have that mindset or I specifically have that mindset that I'm doing this as if I'm doing it for the Lord, um, I think that's really... Um, what I'm getting from that, that every day, even the days that are hard, even the days that I don't want to be there, I'm doing the work for the Lord. Right. I agree, Brittany. I feel like that's the thing that came to my mind too, is that it just all comes back to having, having our eyes fixed on Jesus. He has to be our vision, um, whatever, whatever we're doing. Otherwise it's too easy to lose sight. I, I think for me personally, it's too easy for me to lose the faces. So like we were talking about how it's important to associate people with, you know, with each like interaction that you have and not just think about things in general terms, but to actually see the people and, and how decisions affect them personally. And I think when I, when I see them as people, when I, when I see as Jesus sees, when I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, I can't help but see 
as Jesus sees. And so I think that's, that's definitely the key. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree to get kind of specific for me. I think it, when I think about it in those terms, as you guys have outlined and have Jesus as my focus in the midst of a work day, it changes the way that I answer the phone. It, it changes the way that I, um, respond both externally and internally to the interruptions that I wasn't planning on. So I think in this, it's, this is a hard teaching, another hard teaching from Jesus to, to go completely countercultural, to go upside down kingdom at every moment in every interaction, um, to behave in a way that's consistent with Jesus and Jesus acknowledges this, right? I mean, the disciples are like, so, so who, who can be saved? And, um, Jesus talks about how hard, how hard this is, right? It's going to be basically impossible. Um, and he says with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we know, right. We sit on the other side of this and we know that, we know what God's getting ready to do. We know that Jesus is going to go to the cross and we know that he's going to send an advocate and we're going to have the Holy Spirit to lead us moment by moment to be able to walk into these situations. And so I think as, as, as insurmountable as these tasks seem to love God and love neighbor perfectly in every situation, to set my emotions, my feelings my cultural trainings all aside and do what Jesus would do as, as hard as that seems, we can have hope in the fact that we know that the Holy spirit goes with us and he's there in every moment. And if we will slow down and we will train ourselves to listen to him before we respond, before we act, which is going to take practice, it's going to take time and it's going to take commitment and determination. But as we do that, we, we can have hope in knowing that this is possible with God. And so I find encouragement in that, um, in, in that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as Derek said earlier, thank you, Jesus. And, and so with this understanding or this, this uh, expectation that Jesus lays out in mind, Peter, you know, as the spokesperson of the disciples, now comes back to Jesus and and kind of in a way I would say very similar to the rich young ruler mm-hmm. where he's he's coming to ask a question and he's like well wait hold on I, Jesus I think we've done everything that you're saying um, what then is there for us like I I think we have given up everything. As far as I'm understanding what you just told him, I think we've done it. So, so what? Um, and then Jesus responds to them. Um, essentially you will inherit the kingdom of heaven with me and, and you like, there is the affirmation. So like I said at the beginning of this, you know, the, the, the rich young, man comes to Jesus seeking affirmation and instead faces 
like a, a invitation to furthering his his journey. The disciples come at, with, at the hands of Peter and also are seeking some affirmation on like, we've done that. And Jesus gives them that affirmation. And so it's almost like it, for a while now, we've been talking about how like they're getting it. And I think this is one of those moments where, again, Jesus celebrates them and says, like, you guys are getting it. Yes, you're right. You have given up everything. And that is a very costly decision that you have made, but you have made me the focus. And so this is what you can expect. And then he takes it out from there. And instead of it just being about the 12 disciples that are with him at that moment, he then speaks into our lives and speaks into the lives of, of others who are following him at that time and those who choose to follow him today. And so as extreme as we think or may perceive Jesus's call in the life of this rich young man is, it is still the same call that he has issued to us even today. This call to give up everything, to, to put those things out of our way that might distract us from keeping our focus on him and follow after him with everything that we are. And he even goes so far as to say like the rich young, young man, like he was just giving up material possessions. That's all he was asked to surrender. But here at the end, Jesus begins to talk about the relational cost that might result as well. And Jesus says, essentially, whatever you give up for me, I can guarantee you is going to be worth it. And so maybe the question that we have hanging with us at the end of this is, what is it that Jesus might be asking us to give up? What is it that in our lives that might be distracting us or competing for attention that Jesus is saying, I need you to lay that down so you can follow me more perfectly because that's what I have for you. sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.